Good morning, everyone. Good morning. You can answer back, that's fine. It's actually my preference. My name is Aaron Camp. I'm one of the elders here at Hope. And uh, if you're a guest, I just want you to know I'm not the regular teaching pastor here. That's Pastor Eric, who um, led in our pastoral prayer. Um, but I am excited to be preaching the word this morning. Uh, those of you who are regulars here at Hope, excited to share with you what God has been teaching me. It's the focal point here. It's not what I'm saying week in, week out. It's not what Eric's saying or Jared's saying. What we're hearing from is the Word of God here. That's the part that should stick. That's the part we want to stick, is truth from the Word. As we often do, I'm just going to begin with a word of prayer, and then we'll look at the Scripture together before the sermon starts. So let's pray. Almighty Father, will you please quiet our hearts today to hear from your word? We come with many distractions, some of them still in the service with us. So I pray that you would help us to lock into truth from your word today. It's what we need because this messenger is imperfect. The hearers are imperfect, but your word is truth. We help us to respond to the movement of the spirit that's among us. For those who need encouragement, will you lift them up? For those who need correction, will you help them to respond with repentance and to grow through this message? Most of all, Lord, I ask that all of us will have an elevated understanding of the love of God, the sacrifice of our Savior Jesus, and a desire to follow him in light. We need your help in doing this. So please be at work in this church today. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. I'm sorry to have you guys seated to stand back up, but I ask you to stand up for the reading of the word. If you're able. If you're not able, that's okay. We're going to be starting in John 3, 14. I want to set a little bit of context before we jump right into 3, 16. We're going to read to verse 21 together. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn there. If you don't, it should be on the screens here beside us, or beside me, in front of you. So let's read together John 3, 14 through 21. We read here in the word that as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. There are good reasons and there are bad reasons for the things that we do. When do you have a good reason to run a red light? 
I don't know if I'm just more aware than I used to be, but it feels like I see this happening more and more. I feel like I see people running stop signs or rolling through red lights all the time. Seems that red lights are optional for some. But I'm not going to continue my rant, even though I want to. This sermon's not about the sin of running red lights. It's more about the motivation that would get somebody to do that. Running a red light because you feel like it, because you're bored, because you're late to a friend's house, these are really reckless actions. These are reasons that would be dangerous and selfish, right? On the other hand, there's actually some really good reasons to run red lights. Well, at least for some people. We don't mind at all when emergency services, EMTs, police officers, firefighters, when they go through red lights, we cheer them on. Go do what you need to do. You don't have to stop. The potential consequences between feeling like running a red light and needing to run a red light to do something greater couldn't be more stark. More stark. It's a life lost, potentially, because of your selfishness. Or a life saved because of selflessness. Selfish motivations or compassion for those in need. There's good reasons and there's bad reasons. In our passage today, we're going to be looking at reasons. A reason in particular. A motivation, necessity, consequence. Today, we're going to encounter one of the best reasons ever given in any context, anywhere, at any time. You see, John 3.16 is probably one of the most famous verses in the world, if not the most famous, certainly in the Western world. I mean, I don't think I've watched a single college or professional football championship that I haven't seen a poster that says John 3.16 on it. And of course, it'll be in the colors of your favorite team as well. Many of us grew up memorizing John 3.16. There's good reason for that. But it's easy to forget the context in which this verse occurs. It's easy to forget why Jesus is saying it and why it's here in John 3. You see, this portion of scripture that we'll look through today is the continuation of Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus that Pastor Eric shared last week. John 3.16, my text for today, starts with four in English. And that's really important. It sets the whole stage for the teaching. It could be translated because, which gives a clue that this idea is subordinate, that it's explanatory to the thought before. Specifically, John 3, 14 and 15, in the preceding conversation about being born again. So the flow of the passage works this way. I'm going to start in verse 15 just to show what's going on here. That whoever believes in him may have eternal life because... Blank. And that blank is the rest of this sermon, explaining what it is. John's giving us a reason why we may believe and experience eternal life. He's giving us a reason for why salvation is even possible. We want to ask questions like, why will the Son of Man be lifted up on the cross? Why did God provide salvation at all? Why is eternal life a possibility for you and I. Which brings me to the main point or thesis of the sermon. The surprising love of God 
compels us to believe in Jesus. The surprising love of God compels us to believe in Jesus. And I believe this passage teaches us this truth by introducing three salvation realities. We're going to look at three realities today that compel us to this life characterized by belief in Jesus. I'm going to read them off, all three of them real quick, and then we'll walk through each of these for the remainder of our time. The first is God's surprising motivation. See that in verse 16. Second is our surprising need. That would be 17 and 18. And then the surprising response to the light, which we'll look at in 19 through 21. So let's begin with that first salvation reality. God's surprising motivation. We're going to do something a little different right now. I want you to listen to John 3.16 with fresh ears, as much as possible. Even though you've heard it your whole life, maybe. Maybe you've memorized it at some point. It's so easy for us to take it for granted because it's so familiar. It's, it's been said probably no less than four times already in this service. But I don't want you to take it for granted. I want us to attempt as best as possible not to. So I'm going to ask you to close your eyes. Go ahead and listen while I read. And I'm going to read it twice, and I'm going to read it slowly, but I want you to ponder on it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Some of you may be thinking, is this a little melodramatic? Maybe it is. Some of you may be overwhelmed by the love of God and hearing truth from his word. That he so loved the world that he sent his son. And I imagine most of us are somewhere in between. I just wanted to give this verse some time to settle with this all, right? We can't miss this. The reason given for God's salvation plan, the reason we may be born again to eternal life is love. This is good news about the good news. 1 John 4 shows us that God is the embodiment of love when it says God is love. But here, we don't just see love expressed perfectly in being. We actually see love in action. We see love that does. Love that's a verb. God loves Probably isn't the love, love, love of the Beatles song. But they aren't entirely wrong either. In this context, love might not be all we need, but it's certainly no less than what we need. It's not the love that we talk about when we say we love a particular article of clothing. Oh, I love that shirt. I love that song. I'm going to listen to that again. It's so much deeper than that. 
So we're going to hone in on a portion of this verse to highlight the nature of this love. We want to learn more about this love. God so loved us, but what was it like? The first phrase is, God so loved that he gave his son. Here we see the extent of God's love. Commentators of every stripe highlight this language as extremely important because God so loved expresses the extent of how much he loved. It's not just he loved, it's he so loved. That's intentional, that's linguistic, that's taking place in this passage. So loved that he what, though? Scripture says that he sent his son. This person, his son, that was sent is the greatest expression of so loved that could be imagined. In case you've forgotten how amazing Jesus, the Son of God, is, listen again from Colossians 1. And I'm going to start at verse 15, but listen to how amazing, how amazing Jesus Christ is. He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Nothing exists for anything else than for Jesus' glory. Nothing persists in existence apart from Jesus holding it together. The worth of Jesus Christ cannot be understated. If it's your first time hearing this, this is what Christians have believed from the beginning. No matter how crazy it sounds that we believe Jesus is actually at the core of reality, this is what we believe here. And it's not just that Jesus is valuable in and of himself, which is true. He's also loved and valued by the Father, making this an incredible act of the Father in giving his beloved Son. The love for the Son and the Father is actually well documented in the Gospels. I mean, even later in this book, in John 3, we read that the Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. And then in John 5, we go a few chapters later, we see, For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. There's this special relationship between the Father and the Son that makes this sending just describe that so loved even more. So we see that the ultimate gift has been given. And we're reminded of the motivation for that. Love. The next phrase we want to look into is, whoever believes should not perish. Well, we just looked at kind of the extent of God's love. Here we see a little bit of the result of God's love. Here we see that the love of God motivated a gift and an exquisite gift at that, the best gift that could be given. But the gift wasn't merely sentimental. It was essential. It provided the context for new birth to actually take place. It allows for belief to take place by providing an object of belief. And therefore, the object of salvation. Here we see that the provision of Jesus was not just a beautiful gesture to mankind. It was rescue. It was deliverance from eternal punishment and separation from God. The gift of Jesus was and is and 
always will be salvation. See, the result of God sending Jesus is that those who believe should not perish. When we take these two phrases we just looked at together, and we look at the verse as a whole, we can do nothing better than to worship with hearts of gratitude, deep gratitude and thankfulness for the greatest gift ever given. But that's not always as easy as it sounds, is it? Sometimes it's hard to believe that we're loved. On kind of a, an earthly level, sometimes the actions of others betrays what they say when they say they love us. Sometimes, as it relates to God or others, we feel very unworthy of receiving love. We ask questions like, how could God love me? How could my friend, how could my spouse, how could anyone love me? It's Mother's Day today, so I want to touch on that for a second. <laughs> I want to ask you to think of your mother or a person who has been motherly to you if mom wasn't who she should have been. I want you to think of someone, your mother or someone else who has been motherly that's been nurturing and compassionate, a provider, stable, supportive, showing love. If it's not your own mother, it may be a spiritual mentor, a, a close friend, a relative who took you under their wing. And you know that, that love that you receive from them? You know that love that you have for them? Do you remember why there is a day like today that we celebrate motherhood? It's because the love of a mother is nearly incomparable. So it may be hard to believe it when I say it, but God's love for you so outweighs any experience that you've had with another person. Even an amazing mother or a person who has been a mother to you. Mother's Day is a wonderful day to celebrate. So thank you to all the mothers that are here. I mean that sincerely. Thank you a hundred times over. We celebrate you here at Hope Fellowship. That beautiful though imperfect display of love that's shown, serves as this launching pad for us to be reminded of the perfect love of God. So thank you for that faithful display of love. The book of Romans is that launching pad as we think of motherly love and the joy that takes place there. The book of Romans reminds us a little bit about how God shows his love. When it says, God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Not when we had it all together. Not because we deserved it. Not because he owed us anything. You may not feel it all the time. You may not believe it like you should. But you are loved by God in Jesus. It's a fact even if you struggle to feel it, maybe especially if you struggle to feel it, if you correctly understand that it's undeserved, he showed it. He didn't just say it. He acted on his love. He sent his son because of his love. So if you've experienced faith in Christ, if you believe in his name, if you turn toward him and away from your sin, if you embrace Jesus, 
and his death, his resurrection to make you right with God, there's an accurate descriptor for you and I then. If that's true of you, you are called beloved. You are loved by God. Now that we've established the motivation for God's salvation plan, let's look to the next reality. This is found in verses 17 through 18, and it's our surprising need. We've talked about the extent and the result of God's love and his great love of sending his son, but we haven't talked much about the recipient of God's love. And that recipient is actually first mentioned in verse 16, but elaborated on here in 17 and 18. And it's described, the recipient is described as the world. For God so loved the world. We learn more about this world in verse 17 and 18, so I'm going to read it. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. See, we learn something about the world in this set of verses, and honestly, it's not that good. We get some confirmation at the beginning, which is really encouraging, that the Son of God is being sent in the world not as an act of condemnation. This further illustrates the value of the gift given, that it's beautiful and motivated by love rather than judgment. That doesn't mean that the world is not under condemnation. It just means Jesus being sent was not to add more condemnation. I make that distinction because John and most of the New Testament writers do not use the word world in a positive sense. Technically speaking, though the verse expresses good news to the world, gives no sense that the world is good. See, the world in this use is in great need. The world, according to John, is a place set against God. This, this world we're in is a realm full of fallen sinners. But in this context, it's even a little bit more than that. Don't forget who Jesus is talking to here. Let's go back to the conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus to make sure we understand how astounding this would have been. The description of God loving the world would have been shocking to Nicodemus or any of the early readers or hearers of the book of John, especially in the Jewish context. Nicodemus would have known much about God's love for Israel. He would have highlighted that as much as he possibly could. He would have known the story of the bronze serpent well. He would have recognized that there was salvific elements to that, and he would have anticipated and longed for that salvation for the covenant people, for Israel. But the world? Why would God go and do something like that? In his mind, Nicodemus likely thought the world outside of Israel did not deserve the love of God. Here's the crazy part. Nicodemus is right that the world does not deserve God's love but for all the wrong reasons. This may not be as far off from our experience as we'd like to pretend. We may not be ethnocentric. We may not be partial in the same way Nicodemus was, though that's actually possible too. 
Our reasons may be different than Nicodemus, but we may no doubt believe that salvation is possible for all kinds of people as it relates to ethnicity, as it relates to geography, but we probably still have similar questions in mind. Why should they be saved? you seen the state of the world? you see what's going on out there, what it's really like? Do you know what they're doing? At the heart of it, we wonder the question, what is wrong with this world? Why is it so messed up? And why does it feel like it's getting increasingly so? I find myself wondering that more and more. Thankfully, the Bible has answers. It turns out that this world, this realm of sinners, inasmuch as it rejects Jesus, is already condemned and it's acting like it. It's not something that started with Jesus' coming. It's actually the context in which this world exists. In a lot of ways, we should actually be surprised it's not worse. And this goes all the way back to the beginning of the Bible. In Genesis 1, when our first parents sinned and they chose to disobey God, a curse was placed on humanity. The effects of which would cause all creation to grow. And all humanity, the whole world even, regardless of genetic makeup or cultural distinctions, all humanity fell and experiences judgment. It's why there's this use of legal language here, condemned. In the court of heaven, we all fall short. The whole world, every type of person. All have sinned. All will die the first death. And many the second death. It's, it's terrible news for humanity. But we can't stray too far from the good news of God's love in this passage. Because these verses don't end here. They're not only talking about the condemned. It doesn't end on the bad news. Because Jesus did not introduce this judgment. <coughs> the death sentence was already established as our default position. The coming of Jesus, the loving sending of the Son, was the provision of the solution. It was the beginning of hope. His death is the removal of the penalty of the second death for those who believe. Not the compounding of more and more guilt and charges against us. That's the surprising part. The category is not condemned from this verse does not exist without Jesus. The surprise of the world receiving the gift of Jesus is that it happens at all for anyone. Hope Fellowship, we had great need, but God had greater love. Lastly, we want to look at the third and final reality on display here. The surprising responses to the light. This is found in verses 19 through 21. I said responses there. Because this portion of the passage actually elaborates on the contrast found from the previous verses. So remember, there's the condemned 
and not condemned language. But here, the legal language morphs into more illustrative language. Look at verse 19 with me. You start to see the shift from technical legal language to descriptive illustrations. Verse 19 says, and this is the judgment. That's, that's very legal language. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Notice there there's a switch from condemned and not condemned to darkness and light. Use of this kind of language is not a new strategy for John. Actually, right there at the beginning of this book, in chapter 1, we see exactly the same thing. John 1.9 says, The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. And that true light is Jesus. So, we need to remember that as we're reading this portion, when we hear light, we need to kind of think of it as capitalized. Light the truth are tied to Jesus and his person. So the light has come. But verse 19 begins with there, there being a judgment. And what is the judgment according to verse 19? People loved darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. You see, the response of the world, apart from God's intervention, is enjoyment of darkness and evil over against the gift of the Son of God. Even better than the love shown by God in their hearts. Without God's intervention, that's how it's received. There couldn't be more of a contrast in this passage here today. You see, when God loves the world and sends his own Son into it, the effect is salvation and healing and light. But when man loves the world, the effect is false self-preservation, covering up darkness, persistence in sin, and perishing. Verse 20 and 21, they explain the fruit of what happens when one experiences belief in new birth. And it also sheds light on what happens when unbelief the love of the world and darkness persists. There's this really stark contrast where it says, for everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Unbelief. The refusal of the light, it hides sin, it covers up, it rejects help, it loves sin, and the result is eternal separation from God. He will not allow that in his presence. It's been referred to as perishing in this passage. Rejecting God, loving sin, results in eternal punishment and separation from God. But on the other hand, belief, enabled by the new birth that Jesus was telling Nicodemus about, belief comes to the light. It does truth. It exposes God at work in the light and ensures that new birth begins a journey to eternal life with God forever. 
at least one of the consequences of coming to the light is to put God's love on display. In verse 21, I think that's what we're seeing here, is that when it talks about his works being carried out in God, that these would be clearly seen. I think the purpose here is showing that God's love is put on display when we come to the light. When we come to the light and we do what is right, because we're enabled to now by the power of God, the world sees that and then glorifies God. We don't want to follow the pattern of, of unbelief, which is concealing and hiding our works because they're evil. The love of God actually compels us to keep this pattern of rejecting sin, coming to light, seeing things exposed, and to live with good works. Imperfectly, for sure. And gradually, we get better at it over time. John 8, a few chapters later, confirmed this. Speaking of light again, actually. John 8, 12. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. As we close, I want to ask a question. A question to believers and an appeal to those of you who don't know Jesus. For believers... Do you have that light of life that Jesus is asking about? I actually want to answer for you. If you believe in Jesus, if you've experienced the new birth, you will go to the light. You will live what is true because God is at work in you. That's a promise from his word. Once Jesus starts a work in you, he continues that work until the end. So do you have the light of life? If your answer is, I believe in Jesus, then the answer is yes. You have experienced the love of God. Your need has been met. So continue in the light. Continue in Jesus. And as you do that, you become a light to the world around you. So celebrate God's love by sharing it to others. Get a picture of what the love of God is really like. If you grasp that picture, it's going to be hard for you to contain it. Out of a heart of gratitude, out of a desire to see Jesus known and worshipped, share it. Because of his great motivation of love and our great need in darkness, call others to respond. How can they know unless we tell them? In your household, your neighborhood, your job, Whatever context you find yourself in, let people know how to experience the love of God as you have. Make it known that faith in Jesus will expose them to a world of God's love that they can never imagine and that will never end. Let's watch as God changes hearts around us, draws more worshipers to himself. Let them experience the love of God in Jesus Christ by sharing it. If you're here today and you would say, I have not gone to the light as you've described it. If you're not a Christian, may I just speak candidly to you by reading John 3.16 one more time. This is true. God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. 
Will you leave the darkness and let the light of Jesus expose and heal you? Will you trust in Jesus today? If so, you're welcome to come speak to me. I hope it's clear from this. I'm not a scary guy. I like people. I like talking about the love of God. Come talk to me. I would love it. Come talk to Pastor Eric, Pastor Jared. If you came with someone today who knows the way, who walks in the light, please talk to them. But don't leave today until you've had a chance to talk with one of us about how you can look to Jesus, embrace the light, turn away from darkness, and experience God's love today. Let's pray together. Dear Lord, it's a joy to talk about your love. And there couldn't be a better day for it as we recognize and celebrate the impact that loving mothers can have. We just get this glimpse of the impact that the love of God for his fallen world can, can have. This world really couldn't deserve it less. And yet out of love you sent your son. We couldn't deserve it less as rebels to your cause. May those who do not believe experience new birth. May they understand in ways that we don't know yet. Certainly not at this point in John, how Nicodemus processed it. May they understand it today and experience new birth. May those of us who believe persist in the light. May we celebrate your great love by putting that on display in our works to this lost world. Whether right here in the western suburbs or across the world in places where you are not known yet. May this be true of each and all of our lives. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.